Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Borb. And here we are, Bill, yet again in the bunker. Yes. And we are, this is, as we told our friends on Facebook Live, it's, it's like double shot Monday, Tuesday. Although, although we're, we're putting it, we're recording a podcast on the same day we put one out. Right. We recorded it yesterday, but we never, maybe we'll put one out today. Maybe we'll put two out on one day. Wow. That's, I think, you know, we have a sense of urgency. We had the afternoon free. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's that, raining. Wait a minute. Does that, does that get raining? A sense of urgency and we didn't have anything to do. do. That, that yeah. seems to be a contradictory thing. Yeah. But I think, um, and we did participate in a discussion. And we decided the topic this morning. This morning we did. Before like 9 a.m. We did. No, I, this, I texted, this is, so this is, this I texted is, you before 9 a.m. about this. This is big planning. Well, I think, you know, both of us have been thinking, uh, you know, in the aftermath of our discussion on Sunday uh, uh, and again in the aftermath of the events in Charleston. And I think both of us want to be a little more constructive than reactive. And I thought today's piece that uh, David Brooks's piece in the New York Times was his attempt to do that. So, um, we always, I think, appreciate what he has to say, regardless if we agree with everything. And I think today's editorial is something everybody should read. I'm, I know we'll post a link on the uh, on on the podcast, but the article was intended to called "How to Roll Back Fanaticism." Yes. Now, one of the things he, you know, and again, this is uh, we, my friend, uh, my good friend Adam Kessler and I. Used to argue when or we used to we agreed and and we involved very much in Israeli Palestinian discussions and we used to say we need to retake the fringe middle uh, once again and I think this is David's version of that uh, assertive modesty that would be uh, that would be his program or his proposal yeah and you know he does describe something about what causes an anxious age and he yeah. says that we're being transformed by complex forces like changing demographics and technological disruption. It's really interesting. When I had Tom Nichols on Give and Take a few months ago, he said, you know, in 2008, Barack Obama and John McCain both had the, the courage to treat voters in the Rust Belt at, like adults and say, see those factories? They're not coming back. No, they had different answers to right. what the future was. Right. They said, now it's just like, oh, no, we've got a either we're going to bring them back or we have a whole alternative. So we're going to roll in. And it's not going to be challenging. And, or, you know, like that basically we, we don't deal well with the with technological disruptions, changing demographics. And he also says that people live within bewildering freedom without institutions to trust, unattached to compelling religions and sources of meaning, uncertain about their own lives, which is I mean, the book All Things Shining is one of the best philosophical popular philosophical books i've read in a long time and they talk about this problem the problem of the threat of nihilism when people don't have a, a controlling story as a, sh a shared sort of controlling story that for most people in most of world history there's a con there's some right. common shared stories which give you a sense of value meaning purpose and it's just, yeah and when those stories break down that's when you have the collapse of civilization yeah and he says anxiety is not so much fear of a specific a, a specific thing but a fear of everything an unnamed dread about the future which people will do anything to escape yeah you know we talk a lot about i mean i think we, this is a theme we go back to again and again often talking about what's un, unhelpful in certain theological movements is this idea of anxiety and in, in trying to give simple uh answers to people to somehow 
alleviate their anxiety. And people do it all sorts of ways. I mean, they do it by Jesus is going to make everything right, um, offering a biblical worldview that has nothing to do with either the Bible or the world. Uh, But it seems safe, calling back to the way things used to be. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I don't have time to tell you this, but I was at a meeting before I got here with a really great elder in my congregation, and uh, not a political guy at all. Um, my guess is we probably don't vote the same way, but uh, he's he's just a person, loves people, loves God. And he said, I, I want us to do something in the church for the community. He says, because everyone around me is afraid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we live in a community where I'm sure, you know, probably— 65% of my community, uh, my zip code probably voted for, well, maybe not 65%, but I'm pretty sure 60% voted for, for Trump uh, in my, my little zip code. Uh, so I, I would guess here, are we in the same zip code? I'm 19047. No, we're not. We're not. You? I'm 19053. Which one is better? If anyone knows which is a more prestigious zip code, <laughs> they're neither really prestigious Philadelphia zip codes. But I, think, I would guess ours was 50 50. Yeah, I think you're this area is a little more. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I'm right on the verge edge of where North, North Philadelphia ends. You know, the quarters of Montgomery County and Bucks County come together. And, uh, this is not where the rich people in Bucks County live. Uh, this is a lot of blue collar folks. Uh, ironically, a lot of immigrants, a lot of Russian yeah, and, immigrants. And it's know. interesting. It's people that have moved. Out from the northeast, Philadelphia, right, is interesting because no one moves from Southwest Philly to here. They can move out to Media or Del, like somewhere in Delaware right. County. It's people, people move out to the adjacent suburbs, right? So it just, it just is like these are all folks who went to Philadelphia high schools. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's, but he come and he said, uh, uh, "Now we had a good conversation. I'm not sure what we're going to do, uh, but how do we, you know, how do we live out the idea of the perfect love?" cast out all fear and do it in a non-sectarian. Uh, and, he, and, it was, and this was his idea. He goes, you know, I don't think we're not here to kind of push one religious position or, you know, push our faith. Uh, certainly not political. But what is something we can do to help um, offer people some places to talk and to listen in a way that's, you know, not pol- political or partisan or anger and fear producing, but... Um, a way to recreate community and neighborliness. So I, I, I just, you know, I was, I mean, he's a good soul. I didn't expect that coming from him. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I think I, I would that more people would, I mean, that, I mean, that is a problem, right? We have, we don't have a lot of common spaces to talk, exchange ideas and discover, you know, what, what good goods we have in common, you know, yeah. so, so often it's just like we come in echo chambers Right. That reinforce our biases, things like that. Yeah. And, you know, so much of, you know, again, I'm going to, I don't read a local newspaper. I mean, I mean, I, I don't either. Yeah. And, and um, it's, you know, when I know there's something going in the community, I, I look at it, but, you know, that it kind of, that just reinforces in some levels that our connectedness is not community wide neighborly. Now, again, when I, you know, I, I'm not Facebook friends with anyone. On my block, and I talk to almost all my neighbors. All my neighbors that spend any amount of time outside, I I generally talk with them a bit. Mm-hmm. Like, but that it's just interesting. And I mean, I I went over to our new neighbor's like backyard birthday party and hung out with both 
sets of parents. I know where his, I know where the husband's parents live in York. We've, you know, you know, like it's, it's just interesting, right? Right. I mean, that is, and yet I, I message back and forth with friends on Facebook more than I talk with my neighbors. So, so you, so you guys, are, you know, your neighbors are. You're not reading the same newspapers. Yeah. You may or may not be watching the same TV shows. You know, the kind of news that you share is not. You know, you guys are sharing different circles, and I think that reinforces why. Um, you know, a, regardless, a community, a most basic understanding of a community is people you share your life with. And you can have alternative communities. You can have, you know, families of selection. You can keep in contact with people who you're no longer around. But day-to-day life, the things that make you secure or unsecure has a lot to do with the people around you. Yeah. And one of the things that, like, it, with the instability and lack of community, again, I think probably contributes to what Brooks sees is, is the anxiety problem. He, he thinks, no, I, you know, if you know David Brooks, if you read him regularly, he has never been a Donald Trump fan. So cards on the table. But he thinks that Donald Trump is kind of the perfect snake oil salesman for the moment, he says, because he lacks inwardness and a sense of like inner, an inner compass, an inner calm, a sense of a moral or spiritual compass. And so he's terrified by the possibility of anxiety, which, you know, like right. that really... Uh, so so he's been like escaping well, self self scrutiny and self reflection his whole life. So when everybody else is afraid, rather than say like turn inward and and let's look at the causes for our fears, and yeah, there's most of the things in life we can't control, right? And, and yet you know there is possibly for hope. There's possibly for you know, right. but life is complex. We can't have all the answers. No, here's the answers. Here are all the. Problems the foreign foreigners have taken your job. These kind of people, you know, the we're made bad deals or this or that, and it very bad deals, very bad deals, very bad <laughs> deals. The Iran deal, that beauty, huh? Like you know, but I, I mean, you you see this, and all politicians do this to some degree or another, right? Everybody, I mean, that's like we don't expect, you know, no, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so surprised that a politician didn't keep 100% of the campaign promises. Well, well, it's the nature of the beast, right? You can't, you, 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 you know, what did Cuomo say? You, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. But this is like that on steroids. I mean, where yeah, there's a yeah. sense in which that where the promises don't really have much basis in reality. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, he, he just talks about, and he, he lists a lot of the shortcomings, you know, what, what he thinks are in the, certain staffers in the administration and things like that. That's funny. He talks about like the, the, the you have pseudo intellectual like Bannon who think the world is secretly controlled by the deep state memos by Rich Higgins pausing a massive worldwide conspiracy involving the ACLU, the Muslim Brotherhood, the United Nations and the glo- and global Marxism. And it's on both right and left. I mean, right. this is, this is across the political spectrum that these kind of conspiracy theories, kind of rigid ideology that serve at, to kind of mitigate anxiety. Well, and it's also, you know, one of the things he says is there's a lack of intellectual virtue. Uh, and, and Donald Trump maybe singly has, has ruined a generation for that. Uh, again, he's not the only one. But when you start to codify the chant fake news, uh, when you offer counter – what was the counter-truths or alternative facts uh, – there's a, that's a larger problem for, for our communal nature. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of our favorite trolls, the thing he always attacks us for is being educated. You know, there's a sense where that, that, that there's something inherently dangerous you, or wrong. You more than me, usually. <laughs> but what I'm just saying is that one of the go-to uh, 
rocks that this group of anxious group of people throw is, oh, your problem is that you know too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember in a hearing on a news program one time where this girl was doing a, her science project. Uh, this junior or senior in high school was doing a science project, and she was arguing against global warming or whatever. And um, they got a Nobel Prize scientist to talk to her, and her response was, well, that's your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, I, I think that that it's interesting that he calls it an intellectual virtue because part of the intellectual virtue is knowing that at first, I mean, that you don't know. Yes. I, I mean, it, it, the second step is a little harder. It's knowing what you don't know. Like, I mean, and sometimes yeah. that's not always accessible to you. But to get to the second one, you have to first have the first one. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, I had this experience at dinner with a, a brilliant friend of mine. And uh, one of the things is, as we drove away from there was commenting on the fact is this person is, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, Mike, if you're listening, you have so many quirky things about you, but, uh, and I love you, but um, he's a humble guy. He's a brilliant, maybe one of the leading, he's a leading expert in the world and, and, uh, a particular medical field, but there's a humility about him when he talks about his profession. And I think that goes to that's, that's because people who really know, know what they don't know. And also, also, like you say, know the limitations of what you can know. And I think that's, I mean, there's a sense where I, you know, whether it's great inflation, whether it's giving everybody a trophy for uh, participation I think we've 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 over affirmed and whether it's things like paying day laborers at the end of the day to show up at the last hour the same as the people that worked no. all day. I mean, that's yeah, no. <laughs> what kind of person would do that? No, but you and I disagree about this. But I, I, I mean, you, me, and a guy who's the other guy, first century guy. What was his name? Oh, he tells just, parables. All right, today he would today he would tell the, the, the yeah. everybody participates just, all right, trophy. All you future people, do not let Scott. Be the soccer coach for your kids, or they'll never win anything. <laughs> that, that's probably true. That's probably true. The last shall be first. They, they they'd have they'd have great places in eternal reward and very limited. I, I'm pretty sure soccer doesn't have anything to do with eternity. All things. <laughs> but my whole point is, like I was listening. Take everything captive. Every thought captive. Uh, as we were, uh, just because you beat me one Bible trivia game, now <laughs> exactly. you feel like you're throwing exactly. Bible. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects I've got in the works being a patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about so I invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now 
Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, and Josh Redder. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. But I was just, as I was leaving to come here, uh, there was just a clip of one of the, I don't know, I don't know what his position was. He's a young guy, but he was, he was a, one of the alt-right people. And he was blaming the people that were in the way of the car for, for getting hit on Saturday. He goes, it's unfortunate, but it was their fault that it happened. It's like somebody just ran into my fist. Well, but now the, they have a black eye. But, I mean, so, yeah. but he kept saying, we were remarkably restrained. Yeah. So uh, he was talking like a victim. You know, and that's part of, I mean, that's one of the things I think you and I, I mean, you, if you're going to take a power on power approach to this, in other words, if you're going to, we'll show you Nazis, we'll go pull down a statue, you know, in Durham and feel good about it. By the way, if you pull down a granite or a bronze statue, I would suggest that you don't kick it as a way of satisfaction. I was, I was watching the people pull down. Yeah, that's going to hurt. I was going to say, you know. I hope I hope that was worth it because uh, that's not what how I would show my uh, feeling that I just conquered a dead Confederate statue. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know they had a, a sort of reformed kind of raci- racist alt right kind of person. Uh, well, probably far right, but far extreme racist kind of nationalist guy on NPR who was who no longer is part of that movement and tries to work against it. And he was saying that basically what these movements give young alienated people a lot uh, oftentimes young alienated guys although it's it's more guys but there were women there are women but it's more men a sense of identity community and purpose and brooks says um in the piece he talks about how uh this is is known to the you know neo-nazis are not the first group to discover that war is a force that can give an empty life meaning even a race war and so this tribalism and sort of mythical narratives are uh, yeah. I mean, the, these are ways that people in an age of anxiety find some sense of purpose. Tragically, it's awful, but it's on all sides. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. Sure. You have you, we could talk about. I mean, and, and that's not a false equivalency in that saying everything's the same. But I'm saying you find sort of delusional. Uh, look at the, like, this is in no way to compare morally anything because it's not. Although my wife might say it's moral, but the anti-vax movement, which is largely a left wing or and sometimes libertarian movement and sometimes in christian certain christians yeah and and it's so uh deleterious to public health and there's all the you know but but oftentimes you get this sense of identity worthy we have control because when you're getting all these needles and all this data and medical professionals give it to you oh my gosh like right yeah it gives you a sense of power you know like and and lots of all across the ideological ideological spectrum we often you said there's religious ways to do this you know yeah so i think that that uh, to, in response to this, Brooks says the, the most powerful answer is modesty. He says, progress is not made by crushing some swarm of malevolent foes. It's made by finding balance between competing truths, between freedom and security, diversity and solidarity. There's always going to be counter evidence and mystery. There's no final arrangement that will end conflict, just endless searching and adjustment. Kierkegaard said the more original a human being is, the deeper is his anxiety. Yeah, I, I think that one could argue that the alt-right, certain fringe elements of the alt-right are more dangerous to American society, are practically more dangerous to American society than ISIS because they're here. Yeah. 
And matter some fact, of ISIS is here. Though, yeah, right? but no, but man, there was a guy. Fortunately, he didn't know what he's doing. Tried to blow up a bank the other day. You know, an old guy, and he fortunately it was a fake bomb. But he was ready. He wanted to blow up something. And you know, the interesting thing. This, I think, this is really important because we pretty much, I think, have had an amoral uh, or an unmoral, um, immoral response to the problem of terrorism in the Far East because our our Middle East, because our basic policy has been, let's kill them. Yeah. Okay, now... But you can't kill an ideology. You can't kill an ideology. You can't really kill a religion either. So my problem is, the fact is that we... Certain ones you could, maybe. If you... Well... Well, you can certainly... You can wipe out a lot of people. No, I was just thinking, like, you can't prove a counterfactual, though. Because, like, what if you could prove there's no ancient Near Eastern relics in Utah or Missouri? Mormonism, that would be tough. Yeah, well, you, what if you dug up the bones of Jesus? But well, you know, nobody would ever believe they were the bones of Jesus. Could that be tough? I'm just thinking if we could. okay. Well, Dan Brown, uh, Scientology. Uh, what if you got Tom Cruise and Travolta to renounce the faith? That would kill the religion. There you go, <laughs> Bill. You can kill a religion. I just told you how to do it in 20 seconds. I told you how to kill right, a religion. I stand correct. Not every religion is susceptible to this, but only some. But again, our really. You know, modern, postmodern approach to some difference uh, has been to declare war on terrorism in in, in a way that um, hasn't ended terrorism. Okay. Uh, You know, over half a million people have been killed in Iraq alone, millions of people displaced. And the fact is that you kill Beowulf, (laughs) the mother shows up, and, and you kill the monsters in Beowulf, the mother shows up. The only reason I'm drawing that analogy is that, first of all, maybe it will help us to see uh, the horrific immoral approach we've made carte blanche against Islamic terrorism, for instance. Now, again, I'm not saying that things didn't have to be stopped. I People did us harm. We had to stop them. But look what that has – look what going after bin Laden has turned into. And uh, and there's you know it's, it's happening in multiple countries. Some many countries that many Americans couldn't even find on the map. The reason I'm putting, yeah, I mean, most Americans can't find North Korea. On uh, right, right, you've right. seen the graphs to prove it. But the fact is, we had an act of domestic terrorism on Saturday. Okay, with the potential, with how heavily armed those folks were. I mean, someday, someplace, if this anger of tenor keeps going, you're going to have a bloodbath on your hands somewhere. Okay. Are we going to deal with our local grown terrorists the same way we deal with our international terrorists? I think what that says is that a sheer power on power or the myth of educating people, neither of those things are enough. And I think this, I think we have to look at what's happening in our own country, but we also have to look, you know, we have lived by the sword. And I think some of this stuff is coming to roost. I'm not naive. I think there were some, we should protect ourselves. We should keep people who wanted to harm us away from us. But how many lives in this in our own country, how many families, how many returning servicemen, how many people's lives have been shattered for a war that's not over? I mean, we basically fought a war to hand influence in that region over to Iran. That's currently what's going on right now. So, and, and uh, millions of people have lives, have either lost their lives or been affected by it. Said it once, say it again. <laughs> Princess Bride. Never get in a land war in Asia. There you go. Just that. Just watch The Princess Bride and obey it. Uh, well, but so part of what I've heard in response, the anger to, you know, the, the indignant and righteous anger against the alt-right people 
Um, again, I, I feel offended. I feel terrific as well. But where, what's the next step? If that's, if that's your answer, what's the next step? So I think we need a different way. And, you know, I think a certain kind of modesty, we certainly haven't had any modesty in our international policy, and millions of people have been affected by it. I, I hope that we can use this moment uh, to be a little different among ourselves. I'm not optimistic about that. You know, it's interesting um, that Brooke says modesty means being tough enough to endure the pain of uncertainty and coming to appreciate that pain. I was reading this afternoon a little bit in Gerhard Ford's book on being a theologian of the cross, which is basically a commentary on Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. And I mean, really well written. It's not, and it's something that is very readable, even though he was a professional theologian and a pretty... By the way, this would be a great thing. Those of you who want to uh, do something in honor of uh, the 500th... Uh, yeah, this is great reading. That, that, I, would, I, would, I would highly recommend it as well. Yeah, He's talking about um, how theologians of glory, um, basically, they can't see reality. They see through the created world and the acts of God to the invisible realm of glory behind it. And they must think this because for the system to work, there must be a glory road, um, which the fallen sinner can kind of climb up. And it, it's very interesting. He says that theologians of the cross, however, say what a thing is. That is a characteristic mark of the theologian of the cross is that they learn to call a spade a spade. Since the cross alone is their story, they're not driven by the attempt to see through it, but are drawn into the story. And it's funny because he also notes how Theology of glory ends in a simplistic understanding of God. God, according to philosophers like Plato, is not the cause of all things, but only what we might call good. And he has a footnote where he quotes Plato. And that is interesting. That's what Brooks is saying is what sort of anxiety-driven ideologies do is what Luther says theologies of glory do. They can't see what is. They sort of see what they want to see. Where the first lesson of the theology, the, theology of the cross is the paradox of divine and human and God's suffering uh, which is upends all of our intuitions. And yet, that's what's really there. Yeah, and I would say um, contemporary Christian liberalism and evangelicalism, both of one of their fatal flaws is a kind of triumphalism in their approach to things. Yeah. So we'll, what the Christian can bring to the conversation, I think, is that triumph can come through real confusion and suffering, as it does in Calvary. And, and then subsequently in the resurrection. There's no Sunday without confusing, torturous Fridays. Amen. Oh, she may be weary And young girls, they do get weary Yeah. But why?
All you 